Hello and welcome to the Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM, Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM, Orleans, and always streaming on WOMR.org. My guest today is Goldie Taylor, a veteran political commentator human rights activist, novelist, and journalist whose work has appeared in print, online, on radio, and television nationwide. She's currently an editor-at-large for the Daily Beast. Goldie Taylor grew up in dangerous East St. Louis, Illinois, and endured a childhood in which her father was murdered. She was raped at 11 years old and sent away by her mother to live in an already overburdened household of relatives for reasons she did not understand. Through trauma, abuse, and constant shaming, she managed to survive on what love she was offered, the power of books, and the encouragement of teachers who saw her gifts and challenged her until she was aware of them herself. The story is told with honesty, understanding, hard-earned wisdom, and not an ounce of self-pity in her new memoir, The Love You Save. Goldie Taylor, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you for giving me the space to have this discussion. So your memoir is full of very honest stories about a little girl who was abandoned and mistreated. So many people do not write their memoirs because they're afraid of hurting the dignity of family members, even relatives who have passed away, not to mention those still alive. Obviously, that didn't stop you from writing yours. Can you say why not? You know, I do. There was a hesitance, to be honest, about writing about family, about friends, about circumstances, when you have captured people at their lowest point, sometimes the worst of themselves, when today and you've witnessed them evolve over time and grow and transform as people tend to do. But I wanted to write about them and write about myself to give them the context that they deserved and the kind of context I would want for myself. And so as I approached this work, um, seeing the cities that we lived in as as much a character as the members of my family made it a lot easier if I were talking about holistic issues. I, yeah. Go, go right ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I know today that so many of the characters in my book who were, you know, I thought they were wicked growing up, that they too were carrying their own traumas. So you mentioned the place where you grew up, and many people came to know the name of Ferguson, Missouri, from the protests that erupted after teenager Michael Brown was shot to death by the police. East St. Louis is about 13 miles from Ferguson, and it's the site of one of the ugliest race massacres in American Mm -hmm. history. Can you describe the East St. Louis that you grew up in for us? Well, first of all, Ferguson sits midway between East St. Louis and Illinois and St. Anne, Missouri, the two towns I grew up in. I actually lived in Ferguson uh, before I left for the Marine Corps as a young woman. Um, The East St. Louis I grew up in was called the American Bottom by American geologists because it's built on, the entire city is built on a floodplain. And flood it did really over the years. But it also flooded with racial animus. It flooded with, um, you know, riots in the early 1700s. It flooded with segregation in 
through the late 1960s, it was flooded with white flight that ripped the tax base apart. So that by the time our family landed there, by the time my uncle bought his home on a contract mortgage, the city was predominantly black, had almost no tax base. The schools were in disrepair and crumbling, as were every other social structure. By the time I landed in East St. Louis, um, crack cocaine was beginning to make its way across the country. And what was left of East St. Louis, crack cocaine burned it down. And so I grew up in a city where the murder rate was 16, 17 times the national average. And fully grown adults who reported work, um, among them only 1% reported work full time, year round, not because they didn't want it, but simply because there was no work available to them. Um, outside of a few fast food restaurants in town and maybe a couple of convenience stores and uh, gas stations. And the school district itself, there really was no other enterprise in my town. When you were about 13 years old, without prior warning or any explanation, your mother dropped her off at her sister's house, your Aunt Gerald's, and left you there for over a year. You made many assumptions about why, but you didn't know why. So did you ever find out from your mom why did she leave you there for a year? I did. I was there actually two years, my eighth and ninth grade school year before she returned. But you know, we had this conversation rather pointedly back in 2019 before I wrote a syllable of the book. And she said, you know, I was working nights at the Marriott. What I didn't know is that she was working a second job overnight immediately after that shift. And so sleeping during the day and working two jobs, just trying to make ends meet. She said there was no one to look after my little girl. But my sister and her husband had a good home, a mortgage that they paid every month, and they, they were decent people. There would be someone to look after you. And after, you know, knowing that I was coming home from work late in the evening and that there was on your small person no ready check, no one to make sure that you had a meal that evening, no one home when you got in from school in the afternoon, no one there during the summers when you came in from camp. She said, my sister's house was the best place that I could think of, and it was the one that I could afford. Aunt Gerald, your mother's sister, she, she was really hard on you. She set rigid hours. She forced you to do never-ending housework and turned you into what you actually called a personal page and steward. And yet she told you that she was doing it for your own good. Did you believe that? Did she talk about that very complicated relationship with Aunt Gerald, who for a while was actually your own mom? She was. And back then... I didn't believe that. I didn't believe it was for anyone's good that me, among all the other children, were, as I call it, pressed into service, that we were in charge of the dishes and the bleaching down of the sidewalks. My aunt's home, by the way, was pristine. In a city such as East St. Louis, to carry a home like that was quite a feat, that our yard and the neighbor across the street were the only yard with grass growing because the children and my uncle helped to grow it and make certain that it was protected. Those are the kinds of things that I came up knowing, but feeling a, a big belly of resentment for it. 
looking back, I know why my aunt was specifically hard on me. And I've got mixed feelings about it. On the one hand, she wasn't all that sure that my sexual assault wasn't my own fault. It's hard to get over something like that. But on the other hand, she was going to make darn sure that it didn't happen to me again. And so the school bell rang at 3.30 in the afternoon. Our house was a block down the road from school. I was expected to be home by 3.33. I couldn't leave the porch without her express permission, even to go to a local library, which I often snuck off to on Saturday mornings when she went to the grocery store. And so my world became smaller in East St. Louis. But East St. Louis was becoming increasingly violent, such that a 12, 13-year-old girl shouldn't be walking up and down State Street by herself at any hour of the day. Um, there was a random gunfire, you know, where children living in the project would hide in their bathtubs uh, to shield themselves from stray bullets. There were school friends of mine that today, I look back, they didn't have an Aunt Gerald at home. They didn't make it. They don't have grown children of their own such as I do. They don't have grandchildren, you know, to wake in the morning. They just aren't here today to see this day. So Aunt Cheryl's mission was not necessarily to see us all thrive, but to make certain that we survived. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about a new memoir about surviving and coming to terms with a violent and traumatic childhood. My guest is journalist, human rights advocate, and cable news analyst Goldie Taylor. Her new memoir is The Love You Save. Goldie, you were raped as a child, and although the older people in your life did not know or chose to deny that, they labeled you as fast. You write very powerfully about what that means in the context of a young woman of color, the devastating effect it has. Can you explain what fast does to a person, that label? Sure. So while it's spelled fast, F-A-S-T, they pronounce it fast. And the term is fast tail girls. It is never applied to boys. It is always applied to prepubescent girls who the elders might believe may be wanting sexualized attention, that she may be dressing provocatively, that she may be walking provocatively. She may be acting in ways around boys that is far more mature for her age. She may be inviting the kind of behavior that was bestowed upon me. And so Fast Tale Girls is... It is almost like a scarlet letter for children. It is never applied to, you know, an adult woman above 18, but it is always applied to little girls. It is a shaming of little girls that almost allows or invites um, bad things to happen to them and to dismiss them as the fault of the child. Hmm. And so you find a victim of incest. If you find a victim who has been uh, taken advantage of, maybe by a school teacher or a neighbor, they will be labeled a fast tail girl. And that is the kind of label that I lived with and many of the young girls around me lived with. It was devastating to my psyche then as it is today. I want to talk about three of the most positive things that merged from your memoir. And two of them 
are your grandmothers. Grandma Alice and Grandma Cat, tell us what they meant to you. Well, first of all, they were two of the kindest, most gentle human beings I have ever encountered in all of my days. And I'm turning 55 this summer, so I think that says a lot about them. Alice, before I was ever born, worked at a segregated bus terminal in downtown St. Louis. I describe in the book how she was cutting cakes um, for a living. She had no real formal education. She had been raised in Tunica, Mississippi, and arrived in St. Louis with her husband, uh, Joseph, around 1933, where they began to fashion a better way of life for themselves out of the Deep South. Grandmother Catherine came up uh, not too dissimilarly. Uh, her family came from Spader, Arkansas, but Catherine was born in St. Louis. She, on the other hand, was placed for adoption with her sister and was adopted by a very wealthy uh, black family, wealthy for their time. They were from Middle Fork, Missouri. So she was raised in a solidly middle-class household when something of that kind was unheard of. And so the women grew up differently, reared differently, but gosh, their love for me was as, was as deep as the Mississippi. Alice I lived with from day to day at my Aunt Gerald's house. She was my safe harbor. She was the skirt under which I hid um, when trouble struck. Catherine and her husband, Roy, my grandfather, lived in Florida. And I got to visit them only for certain holidays, sometimes for a day or two, maybe three out of a summer time, to fly to Miami and back um, to be with them. It was a very different, different kind of existence. But I trusted the two of those women with every breath I ever took. And it was Catherine was the first and only person I had ever confided my rape with. And for the first time, someone told me I was at 30, that I, that I should have no shame about what happened to me. And so they were, they were saving graces, but they lived their lives in a way that I wanted to emulate. I wanted to have that kind of grace. Another positive aspect of your child were the teachers who encouraged you. How important are teachers? Where would you be without those teachers? Oh, teachers are everything. You know, parents are certainly obligated to do all they do for their children, but we leave our children in the care of others, in the care of teachers for many hours a day, many weeks out of the year, nine months out of the year. And so they become uh, second caregivers. They pour into them, you know, this wealth of knowledge. And I don't know that we give teachers enough credit for what they do in raising gener generations of American school children. But mine, especially in the eighth and ninth grade, they were the only thing standing between me and the street that my life could be so very different, if not for a handful of school teachers in East St. Louis. One of them that I specifically talk about is Peggy Lewis LeCompte, and I happen to be able to spend some time with her last week in St. Louis. But her motto was excellence without excuse. She said, Goldie, I didn't know what your life was like outside of my classroom. I knew that there had to be trouble. But that was true for every child in my classroom. And so while I did not discount their pains, I said to them, you have to live beyond it. And so here is the work that must be accomplished. No matter the barrier, you must step over it. And so it was Peggy Lewis LeCompte who handed me 
Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin and Margaret Walker and Maya Angelou and Langston Hughes. She handed me Invictus by William Ernest Henley. She handed me, you know, Homer, the Iliad. She handed me um, Mark Twain. Today, Peggy Lewis LeCompte would be arrested for the education she gave me. Her classroom library, if under the state of Florida's laws today, would have caused a felony charge for her. And so all of the pouring in that she did to me to show me diverse perspectives about how people of color like me helped to contribute to and build this great nation. I could see a reflection of myself in the poetry, in the novels, in the uh, civil rights speeches of Dr. King. I could see a reflection of myself that I could get nowhere else. That very same education today in Tennessee, in Florida, and other states would have her and others like her arrested. And that, I think, is a shame. You make a point to tell us that, as a practice, moving children between family members was not uncommon in black America and is rooted in African culture. As you were writing the book, were you at all given pause by what Toni Morrison called the white gaze, that is, that white culture wouldn't understand what was fairly normal in black culture, and were you afraid that they'd hold your family and other poor black people to another standard? I was very much aware of that, very much aware of the white gaze. In fact, uh, a woman named uh, Rebecca Carroll, who wrote a book called White Gaze, was with me in conversation in Brooklyn uh, last Monday. And so we're very much aware of it. What I wanted to do with this book is to give people a perspective into it. What did it mean in St. Anne, Missouri, as we were attempting to dress well and, and uh, you know, when among the Romans, you know, when in Rome, you know, uh, do as the Romans. And so we altered our behavior, our, our speech, our, the way we dressed, so that we would fit in. We left our culture back in East St. Louis when we moved to St. Anne. But in East St. Louis, Peggy Lewis LeCompte taught us to speak what she called the King's English. Fox wasn't allowed in her classroom. That you had to learn to acquit yourself in the way that would be acceptable to the world around you. But never, she said, leave your history behind you. Take that with you too. And so that was a balance that we really needed to, needed to strike. I became what I call a masterful code switcher, being able to walk between cultures and get along just fine altering my speech uh, or how I held myself, um, the kind of conversation that I would engage in, that code switching became a necessity out of, you know, it was a path to economic mobility. It was a path to a better education, but also meant safety when you were in neighborhoods that were less than desirable. And so the white gaze was always upon us, no matter which city I lived in, no matter who I traveled among. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about a new memoir about surviving a traumatic childhood and the complexities of familial love. My guest is journalist, human rights advocate, and cable news analyst Gail Goldie Taylor. Her new memoir is The Love You Save. Goldie Taylor, when you encounter young people who are going through the childhood lives that were as tough as your own, 
What do you say to them? Do you assure them it will pass? Is there anything that you can say? Well, there is no guarantee that it will pass. The way that our society is set up today, we have practiced a politics of containment rather than trying to solve our problems of healthcare inequality, poverty, uh, violent crime. We've sought to contain it rather than find solutions that will solve them. There is no guarantee that an American child who grew up in the similar circumstances as I did would make it out that it would pass. You literally have to make it pass. And that means far more hurdles than maybe your counterpart in a suburban school might encounter every day. But the responsibility will be yours. And so what I tell school children that I meet today, eighth, ninth grade children, that your tomorrow starts right now. What you decide right here today, the level of commitment you will have to your community, level of commitment you will have to your schoolwork or your studies in terms of what you get inside of the classroom and what you get outside by self-educating, how you conduct yourself now will govern the life that you will have or whether you will have a life at all. And so I think that's the, the counsel that I give to children is to look at, you know, tomorrow is a very bad word. Let's start right here and let's start today. You took refuge in books. You read everything you could get your hands on. But among all the authors you read, James Baldwin seems to come up the most in the book that that we're talking about today. Can you say why, what it was about James Baldwin that so moved you? In so many ways, James Baldwin made my world make sense. I didn't understand uh, what was happening in the streets around me or why these things were happening. That the neighborhoods that he reflected with prostitution and drug addiction and uh, gun violence and other maladies that he spoke of, that was happening around me too. And so, and he talked about it in the context of race and gender and class. And that sort of unraveled the puzzle a bit for me, that I could see things uh, certainly more clearly. On the other hand, he spoke to how angry I was. I was, especially after I was assaulted in 1980, um, and then again, repeatedly by an older cousin the following year. I was, you could smell the anger coming off my bones. James Baldwin helped me make sense of that too. I think he is known for saying that, you know, to be Negro in this country is to be in a constant state of rage. I felt that. And he was the only person speaking um, to that emotion in me. It likely saved my life. Your grandma Alice told you, love don't always come packed up and pretty like you want it. And that seems like a theme for the entire book, that sometimes people who love you act in ways that seem the opposite of love. How can we reconcile that? How do we sidestep resentment and hurt feelings and learn to forgive people who have, may have acted cruelly, but also had our best interests in mind, and maybe were acting out of their own 
frustration and pain. How do you, how do you go back and forgive those people? So many of the people who populated my early years were in their own kind of pain. I think each of us has a story. All of us comes from some place, and each of us is broken in some ways. What Grandma Alice taught me to do was to meet people where they are. Not always to accept them just as they are, but certainly to meet them where they are. And so that meant if you had a cousin who was in a particular level of pain, who was mean to you on a giving day, love them and move on. That never uh, makes someone stoop so low as to make you hate them. And so that was something that Grandma Alice gave to me. I've carried it with me always. Now, I didn't know what you know what God had to do with that burnt-up bacon she used to put on the plate all the time. <laughs> but I certainly, it certainly helped me keep my connection with my mother. Because I did at that time feel abandoned. I didn't know why I had been left there with Aunt Geraldine. I thought she didn't want me. My grandmother assured me that that wasn't the case. And that my mother's love for me was perfect. And that, you know, it doesn't always come wrapped up and pretty like you want it to. But that doesn't change that it is love indeed. Last question. You quote Maya Angelou in the book saying, The black woman is assaulted in her tender years by all the common forces of nature at the same time that she's caught in the tripartite crossfire of masculine prejudice, white illogical hate, and the black, black lack of power. That comes from I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, which was published over 50 years ago. Can you say things have changed a lot, or is the sharp struggle still the same, better, worse? What do you feel for your own children? Unfortunately, Dr. Angelou's words were as true 50 years ago as they are today. That was, in fact, the first first writing of Dr. Angelou's that I'd ever read. Um, it struck me in the chest like a hot poker. When I say that it made the world around me clearer, it made my set of circumstances to me clearer, but it also made me want to fight. It made me want, it, it, it made me see a value in myself that maybe some others didn't see. That when uh, Peggy Lewis Lecomte was showing me a reflection of myself in these writings. She was simultaneously telling me that I was valuable and powerful and that I should be seen and recognized, heard and embraced for what I am. And I think that was the spark. And so Dr. Angelou talks about Stamps, Arkansas. And uh, I know why the cage bird sings. East St. Louis was my Stamps, Arkansas. In so many ways, we lived a remarkably similar life. And so I am grateful for that passage and grateful for so much prose that she left us. Have you have you ever met Dr. Angelo when she was alive? In fact, I did. I had the glory of meeting her uh, in my middle 30s. I'd written a novel called In My Father's House that I self-published. And I mailed it to Dr. Angelo at her residence. I looked it up in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Yes. I mailed that book to her home. The next thing I knew, and I think this was August 5th of that year, 
we were at a book event that I put on for myself and that self-published book and out came the Atlanta Journal Constitution. There was a one-on-one interview with Dr. Angela. And the question was asked, what are you reading now? And she said, I'm reading In My Father's House by Goldie Taylor. Mm-hmm. It was the most incredible moment, but it wasn't more than a week later that she was in Atlanta. And I made my way to see her and through friends finally introduced. She too was from St. Louis. And, you know, she said, uh, you're a St. Louis gal. I just want you to keep writing and keep writing and keep writing. And so it was a, it was a remarkable experience for me and a set in motion because I happened to take a brown envelope and pop a copy of my self-published book in the mail to Dr. Angelou. I wanted her to know how much I revered her. Goldie Taylor, thank you so much. I just have, that was so beautiful. I have to say, I, I had the pleasure of socializing and meeting Dr. Angelo for many summers. She came up here yeah. this summer and um, she was a one of a kind, brilliant, wonderful woman. I want to thank you so much for talking with us today. My guest today has been political analyst, novelist, human rights advocate, Goldie Taylor. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. The Love You Save was recently published by Hanover Square Press. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the stories of people's lives that enable us to enrich our own one interview at a time. Bye for now. <laughs>